Today on Peace Talks Radio, a look at a program that seems to be having some success in quelling the violence in some men with histories of domestic abuse. They've come through the criminal justice system, which is really focused on a particular incident. We're not going to talk about that incident uh, on the first day. Tell me what's the thing that you do in your relationship with a woman that doesn't make it go so well. And then they get to pick. And by the time that one hour of conversation is done, most of the guys in there see that they have something to learn. The Domestic Abuse Intervention Project in Minnesota is getting some attention as it explores deeply the lived experience of both offenders and victims of domestic violence. We wanted to take that model and say, how is it that you work with women who are not using oppressive violence, but resistive violence, resisting to the oppression that they are experiencing? Getting inside the world of domestic abuse. Today on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with Carol Boss. Whether it's the search for inner peace or how to resolve conflict with others in our homes, schools, workplaces, communities, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. We spotlight the great peacemakers throughout history as well as those doing the good work of peacemaking on any level today, both the famous and not so famous. In Minnesota, 38-year-old Robert King is trying to make peace in his relationship with his wife. After 20 years of abusing women, Robert finally was forced into getting help through what's now being referred to in domestic abuse circles as the Duluth Model, a domestic abuse intervention program, the heart of which is to get both offenders and victims to talk openly about their experiences and to get multiple agencies to work cooperatively around the understanding gleaned from their true stories. So Robert King has been talking in these week-after-week sessions and learning how brutal he's been to women and how to break the cycle of violence. We'll start somewhat in the middle of his story. Take heed that some of the language in these accounts is a bit raw and graphic. Robert King recounting multiple instances of roughing up, intimidating, and manipulating his wife to our host, Carol Boss. In terms of the, the battering that went on in your marriage, were the police ever called? Oh, yeah. But I was able to manipulate my wife enough um, to where she would drop the charges or I'd end up in jail every time the cops were called. There was no questioning that, but I managed to get out. What was the definitive moment then? There was an incident that went too far when um, my wife had come home drunk and I was in the living room and Things got ugly and she started getting slap happy with me and jumped on top of me and I was like stuck in the cocoon couch like a cocoon and got her off me and started hitting her back and it pursued into the bedroom and <clears throat> she kept coming at me and, and I just pushed her down and she hit me with something I can't remember and I uh, I I kind of blanked out I, I I put my hands on her throat and started choking her and I, I heard what sounded like something snapping you know, and, and I, I snapped out of it at the same time and realized what the, what the was going on, and she just was laying there gasping, and it made me... Uh, it made me realize how far I, I could have went. Did you, did you at all think you killed her, or 
were going to kill I, him? I thought I hurt her severely. I thought I did, uh, you know, I, it, it, it wasn't a pretty sight at all. And so the police came. Yeah, and of course, you know, I still tried to minimize what happened. I tried to talk my way out of it, you know. Like, she came at me, I didn't put my, you know, but it was it was too obvious, and there was no lying on my way out of it, and then it just, yeah. Is that how you wound up in the domestic abuse intervention program? No, that wasn't even the, the reason why that, that uh, Believe it or not, the the charges got dropped because, again, I was able to manipulate my wife into, you know, talking to the county attorney and talking to the judge, you know, let them believe that uh, I was going to get help and that we were going to go to counseling and that things would be better. And Because um, on the outside looking in, we, we look like, you know, the Cleavers, the Brady Bunch, you know, we had a... White house, white picket fence, white dog, white trucks, white car, you know. It, it it looked real good. And we put on a good show when we were in public, you know. Not too many people seeing us, you know, in an abusive situation. But behind closed doors, it was, it was pretty hellish in my home. So how did you wind up in the domestic abuse intervention program? She finally ended up getting another OFP on me, and... Can you explain what that is? An order for protection. I ended up catching another domestic, but this time it stuck. You know, they they had finally looked at the pattern, you know, of OFPs filed by my wife, domestic charges brought against me and being dropped, and it was finally time to make Mr. King, you know, pay the piper, you know. And I got into the program, and of course, you know, I, I didn't, want to listen to anything that, you know, the DAIP program had to say. You know, I didn't look at myself as an abusive person. I mean, I looked at myself as being justified in my own actions because I'm a man. So you walked into that program um, feeling resistant to oh, it? Oh, by far, yeah. Not, you know, there's, there's just so much that a man wants to acknowledge and admit that, you know, as to the way he really is. You have to start with the lived experiences of better women first. Just ask the women, so what's it like to live with a man who beats you? Melissa Skaya is executive director of Advocates for Family Peace in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Scott Miller is system coordinator for the Domestic Abuse Intervention Project in Duluth. What are all the things that he does to get his way? And as the women over time describe their experience from a multitude of you know, points of view, themes began to emerge. Tactics that the men were using to, to get the compliance that they were looking for in their partners started to emerge. And uh, eventually the, the people uh, you know, in our agency at the time put together the power and control wheel, which then became the foundation for understanding this experience of living with a batterer. The power and control wheel is divided by eight spokes made up of behaviors like using economic abuse, coercion and threats, intimidation, emotional abuse, male privilege, isolation, the children, and minimizing, denying, and blaming, as Robert was doing with his wife. Again, Scott Miller on the power and control wheel. That foundation then helped us figure out 
if that's the reality, then how do we intervene as a community to fix it? I mean, it's almost like saying you can't fix the problem until you truly understand what it is. And the power and control wheel gave us the understanding to move to the criminal justice system specifically and say, this is if we are going to intervene effectively, these are the changes that the system is going to have to make in order to uh, not make it worse for the victims and hold offenders accountable. An example of that is that when we were developing a particular police response with our law enforcement, we said we want to think about the most uh, high-risk men who batter and what is it that the police should be asking. We went to batter women first and said, what are the worst things, the things that were indicators to you that um, about the violence and when things were getting to a really high potential lethality? What kind of responses did you get? The women said, essentially, you need to ask some sort of question about the coercion that we are experiencing in terms of sexual coercion. And so when we went to the police, the police were a little bit resistant at first about asking those questions for a myriad of reasons. And so we had the agreement with law enforcement that let's ask these questions for six months and then let's come back and see what your experience is. And one officer said to us, for example, he said, you know, I was a little bit resistant to asking the question to better women upon, you know, arrest for their partner about sexual coercion. And he said, I asked this particular woman the question and she looked at me and she paused and she said, if I say no to you, I'll be lying. And so you're the first person I'm going to say, yes, it's happened, and I can't believe I'm telling you. And so those similar sorts of stories were coming back to the police. And so that was one of the things that sort of we're working on sort of getting elevated in terms of the investigation and how the criminal justice system takes it up. I know a number of communities are looking at intimate partner sexual violence within the context of battering, and this is just one example of that. Robert King began to learn about dominating women sexually, along with everything else he learned about abusing women, when he was not even yet a teen. My father was pretty much absent. You know, my mother did what she could to put herself through college to try to provide a better life for us by leaving the Duluth area when I was really young and to move to the cities for a better life. What I was was left at home alone a lot. And I was just trying to find an acceptance sense of belonging <clears throat> and I found that with the you know older older fellows in the neighborhood you know that were already banging or selling dope and you know they showed me a way of, of, of getting things and a way of survival and that was the life that that I found appealing. So when you started hanging out with gang members can you talk specifically about how you Robert started treating girls? With the utmost disrespect, I didn't. I didn't treat them, you know, as I would my own mother. You know, because I I learned, you know, through all their homies that you know this is how this is how you're going to treat them for for these women to to respect you. Well, which which I thought that they were respecting me. More or less, what they did is fear me. So, what did it look like that behavior? Uh, Just Mm. just bullying them, you know, talking them down, calling them bitches and hoes and. You know, not giving them the their own mind to to speak anything or talk up to me or anything else. What about physically? Not push them around. You know, give them a smack if if I felt needed. Um, you know, it was just the behavior I thought was appropriate. 
Was, was there anything that you remember doing when you were a teenager and part of a gang that actually at that time shocked you? That you something that you did? <laughs> um Um, quite a few things, actually. Um, um, I don't know, there was, there's this, it's really hard to say. With obvious hesitancy, Robert recalled one girl that everyone in the gang tormented. Everybody just, just treated her like, she was nothing like she was garbage uh, along with myself and um only thing that she was good for was sexual favors and and everybody treated her that way and she put herself out there and let herself get treated that way and when i look back and reflect at all, all the different you know incidences in my life that that's the one person that i truly felt sorry about treating that way Mm-hmm. Um, the, because she didn't deserve to be treated the, the way she was, and the way we we belittled her, the way we you know broke her down, you know crushed her self esteem, you know like dug a basement for her underneath this high hierarchy of you know that men hold themselves to be so you know empowering over. Wow, that was that was, <laughs> that was hard to talk about. You know, it's not a laughing matter, but I you really made me think about something there. Um, I know she she grew up to to, to go to college. I think the last time I I had spoken to her about ten years ago, and she turned her life around. She had a husband and, and a family, and you know, she found somebody that actually you know respected her and and, and treated mm-hmm. her good. Going back to your to what you were saying about your mother uh, a few moments ago, it sounds like your mom was admirable and strong. She did what she could to provide a good life for me, but for me it wasn't good enough, you know, because if there was something that I wanted or needed, you know, I had to find the, the means to do it, you know. I, I didn't take the time to look at that. My mother was working these jobs and putting herself through school just to uh, provide a better life for me, not to give me the things that I didn't need in life. Just, you know what I mean? So that was um, a 12-year-old's perspective, huh? Yeah. I mean, when it, it came down to looting or robbing or, or, you know, assaulting somebody just to get some pocket change or a new pair of shoes or, you know, a nice jacket or whatever, you know. We could come in as a, as a, as a facilitators and give a lecture on what respect is and hope that somehow they'll adopt it. Again, Scott Miller with the Domestic Abuse Intervention Project. He's been leading the talk sessions that Robert and other batterers have been attending. And what Paulo Freire would say, that that's banking education. That's where the, the teacher imposes their beliefs and knowledge on the students, and the students need to regurgitate it in the way that they were given it. Um, and he finds that, you know, wholly ineffective when it comes to personal change. What we're going to do is we're going to go in that room and we're going to say, so, um, you know, tonight we're going to talk about the theme of respect and we'd like to know how you define that. And oftentimes what comes back to us is I'm respected when she does what I tell her to do. And it really, you know, the men aren't making this up at that point. They're really, it's really coming from their, 
their their experience that this is this is the problem you know i tell her what to do and she doesn't do it you know and she disrespects me all the time so for you respect is compliance and and just that statement reframes how they think about it for even just a moment it may not change the whole world at that moment but now they're looking at it from an alternative point of view one that they had not looked at it before and so when they begin to see, when the guys say, you know, I don't communicate uh, that well sometimes. Well, when you don't communicate well, what do you do? Well, I scream. I yell. I call her names. What names do you call her? What do you do with your body? I put holes in the wall. I break furniture. And what's the intent behind that? Well, to get her to understand. So if she understood, what would she do? what I say, right? So they begin to see this pattern that everything that they think is a problem between the two of them is really about him trying to get her to do what he wants. So another example is um, the men often say, she never listens to me or she doesn't cooperate with me. Well, how would you know that she was? How would, I, how would you know she's listening to you? Well, she would be doing what I tell her. Okay, well, that's just doing what she tell her. So let's think about listening in a, in, a, in a different way and just see where that takes us, right? So if, she was, if you were to listen and respect what she had to say, what might be the outcome of that? And they really have all the answers, you know? They, they know what, how this goes because it's not like they batter everybody in their lives. They batter her. Because they believe that, that as a man in the home, I'm entitled to control my wife. They don't believe that about their boss. So they know how to listen to their boss. So, I mean, they're not without the skill. They're not without the ability. But the beliefs that they have about what they get to do in this particular relationship changes dramatically how they behave. And so our job is really to help them see who they are and, where, and, and, and when they understand who they are, where does that take you? What are the consequences of that for you, for her, for your children? And really, the consequences are what really is the motivator to get something, to do, to do something different. Because they, they, then they see, this isn't working for me. This isn't getting me what I want. More from our guests about the Domestic Abuse Intervention Project in Minnesota when we continue on Peace Talks Radio right after this break.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Check out all our episodes online dating back to 2002 at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today we're looking at a program that seems to be having some success in quelling the violence in some men with histories of domestic abuse. Called the Duluth Model, a domestic abuse intervention project in Minnesota is getting some attention as it explores deeply the lived experience of both offenders and victims of domestic violence through extensive interviews and facilitated forums. The interviews have led to action plans involving multiple agencies and communities, including law enforcement, to try to protect victims and reform offenders. We've been hearing from one offender, Robert King, a participant in the program, and Scott Miller, system coordinator for the Domestic Abuse Intervention Project in Duluth. And now here's more with Melissa Skaya, Executive Director of Advocates for Family Peace in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, talking with our Carol Boss. The most intensive time we'll have with battered women is in the first 72 hours after the incident. And that we really want to be reaching out to victims as opposed to waiting for them to come to us because of the experience of the battering that, that they're having and the, um, the lethality factors, the intensity of the violence, just even the misinformation that men who batter give uh, better women about what will happen to them. I mean, it's as sort of uh, silly as we had a woman recently who said, he told me if he gets arrested, he'll lose his fishing rights. You don't lose your fishing rights if you get arrested. But that's the level um, of coercion and sort of really dominating and taking over the thinking of her that um, is is an example of. And then what happens after that? those first 72 crucial hours? So part of it then is that then the courts sort of really take up, you know, the incident per se. And what we're always trying to do is to elevate and bring to the forefront the violence and the impact of the violence on her as part of every intervention that the court makes and other court partners. So one of the first things that the court is going to do is they're going to consider whether or not to release him. Uh, what sort of bail, what sort of conditions. And so then our work is with victims is to help, you know, with the release of information, we're going to coordinate with those criminal justice partners to help them bring forth that violence. Oftentimes victims will tell us things that they haven't told the police, so we're going to coordinate with um, her desire, of course, to also give maybe a second interview and then to meet with the prosecutor to let them know about the impact of their decisions on uh, the battered woman's life. And same with probation, who's going to oftentimes monitor him during that sort of pretrial phase. And, you know, assuming he eventually gets released pretrial, we're going to work with the probation officer with the victim to help sure that he's monitored. And so when we talk about a swift response and accountability, so that when, for example, if he violates what's called in the state of Minnesota, a DANCO, a domestic abuse, no contact order, if he makes contact with her and, and He's not supposed to. Uh, a real well-coordinated criminal justice response will have a swift accountability for that contact. And so every time men who batter walk around our community with the thinking of, I get to do this with impunity, then what we do is we support his continued violence. And so our counter to that has to be a swift and just response to every time he breaks the court order. And our work as advocates is to say what every impact of the criminal justice in her life makes. It's our job as advocates to speak on behalf of and speak up on behalf of better women. Melissa, Advocates for Family Peace has developed an intervention program for women 
Um, so this program for women uses the Duluth model. And can you tell us some, what some of the elements of that program are? Better women were essentially getting arrested. And so what we knew is that a lot of women who are being battered were using legal and illegal force in response to being oppressed, dominated, battered. And so we worked with the criminal justice response. And the Duluth model, part of that is uh, groups or classes, men's nonviolence classes. And so we wanted to take that model and say, how is it that you work with women who are not using oppressive violence, but resistive violence, resisting to the oppression that they are experiencing, and develop a different group model for that? And so one of the founders of the Duluth model, Ellen Pence, worked with myself and another of our staff members, Laura Connolly, to develop an intervention called Turning Points, a nonviolence curriculum for women. And so we wanted to develop a model that looked at the resistive violence. So how is it that you end the violence that women are experiencing as well as the violence they're using? Because anybody living in a better situation, or most people, at some point will resist it with some use of violence. And so we have to take up the contextual nature of that violence. So when it's not dominating or oppressing violence, but resisting the domination, we have to de- we said we have to develop something different. And so, because what we were finding is that people were taking the Duluth Models men curriculum and trying to use that or sort of reorganize it with women who are using resistance to violence. And of course, that's a problem because that's not the nature of which it comes from. And so Ellen and Laura and I started with interviewing um, bad women who were getting arrested and doing focus groups of women who are getting arrested to find out what was their lived experience. And then the curriculum and the work came from that. And so every part of the notion of the Duluth model is that you always start with the live lives of the pe- people who are experiencing the violence. So we took that sort of theory and notion and then developed this piece of work, uh, Turning Points and Nonviolence Curriculum for Women, to really think about and utilize a, a process. But part of that had to be with the criminal justice system. What is justice? So that was a key question that Mary Asmus from the City of Duluth uh, Attorney's Office sort of looked at. What is justice in a case in which a battered woman is using violence from a resistive place as opposed to an oppressive place? And that sort of also started the grounding of our work. I read uh, the objectives of this intervention program for women, and one of them is is to help women step back from the immediacy of their situations to see the bigger picture. Can you talk a little bit more about that and, and what that looks like? Right. So part of it is that when you're living and battering, the every little thing that um, you're experiencing, you because it's so oppressive, you don't get the experience of being reflective about it. So when you're doing a group for women who are arrested, you're going to have women who are actually still living in the battering situation. And so I'm uh, thinking about the last group of women we just had. The woman said, this group gives me that time and space of reflection that I wouldn't otherwise have in my life. Scott Miller with the domestic abuse intervention programs in Duluth. Uh, are many of the men that are in the nonviolence program court ordered to do so? Most are, yes. Most are ordered through criminal courts. Some are ordered through the civil court process, um, order for protections that get issued, and sometimes we'll order men to the program. And then about 10% of the men in our program are volunteers. So do you have to deal with, at the beginning, resistance from a good number of them, just for the fact that they they have to be there? 
Oh yeah, <laughs> they'll they, the the orientation you know class class which is you know we'll have six eight men first time there you know um, they don't be, they think it's their victims of the system that they don't belong there that everything she says is a lie um, they have nothing to learn um, so yeah all of that is there and and really the challenge to it starts right when they walk into the door and I walk over shake their hand welcome them tell them that you know we're going to meet in this room down the hall there's coffee in the room if they want it um, and and really model something alternative because they've just went through the, you just said, you know they, they, they've come through the criminal justice system which is really focused on a particular incident and they've been fighting this whole time to prove that that particular incident that they're innocent and we're more interested in what the context of their lives have been in that home with their family. Um, and so we're not going to we're not going to talk about that incident uh, on the first day. We're not going to even go there because they're they're too used to fighting that in the in the courts. Tell me what's the what's the thing that you do in your relationship with a woman that doesn't make it go so well? That's the question. And then they get to pick the problem they want to identify. And we start there. And by the time that one hour of conversation is done, most of the guys in there see that they have something, even if it's a little thing, to learn um, that might help them. Again, a bit more of Carol Boss's conversation with Robert King, whose history of battering women landed him in the Domestic Abuse Intervention Project in 2009. So that program consists, what is it, 27 or 28 27 um, groups, 27 sessions, weeks. Mm-hmm. So what was that first one like for you? You, you came in walking in um, resistant. It sounds like you probably did not have positive expectations for it. No, because you know 90% of the guys there are, are court-ordered, meaning you're, you're mandated by your probation officer or the courts to go through it. So you... You you feel like it, it's kind of the scenario to you know you know an addict you know if you're forced into getting help it's like you know you're not going to help yourself unless you want the help you know but then after you know a few classes there I started I, I just sat back and and listened and reflected on my own life and my own behaviors and to realize and and think about what Scott Miller and and, and the other people that were saying it it made sense you know it made me look at myself as a, how much of a, a shallow life that I lived, you know, and how how, how, how much of an asshole I really was. When did that happen? When Do you remember when in the program? Um, it sounds like it, it wouldn't have been the, the first group meeting, but... It was, it was the fourth or fifth group. And what happened in the group? What had been happening in the group those um, weeks before or that fourth or fifth meeting or whatever that I something they, changed? I thought they were full of Trying to tell me that it, it, um, I was abusive, that I was this, you know, controlling, manipulative prick that, you know, there's a reason. You know, I didn't want to admit to, to anything as to how I was, as to what got me in that program, even, you know, even though it wasn't black and white as to the charges and what happened. And, you know, and I sit in the group now, you know, and, and, I, and I listen to other guys' stories and they all want to say, like, well, all I did is push her and I'm here. Well, okay, well, you still did in an abuse. You still have an abusive behavior that led to the pattern of you ending up here. So you, you are abusive. 
Was there a moment or a story or a particular point that Scott Miller, who, who has been leading these groups, that really had an impact? You know, one of those moments that just went straight to your, to your heart. When Scott shared his story with me, when Scott showed, shared to the group how he was abused, how he was not afraid to tell what happened to him, and, and it made me step back and be like, wow, here's this perfect stranger that I've never known, speaking to all of us and openly sharing his story, what happened to him. And I wouldn't say exactly from that moment on, but pretty dang close as to when I realized that I'm going to get a lot out of sharing than sitting there with my mouth closed and trying to minimize and convince everybody else that I'm not abusive. I want to ask you something. Did, did you use your children against their mother? Yes. Can you just... Can you describe what that is all about? I, I, I don't. We just talked about this too last group because um, my wife, my wife has an awful disease, you know, alcoholism, drug addiction, and instead of making my children or or to educate them on what that disease really entailed. I use that against their mother as to to paint this ugly picture. She's just an alcoholic. She's just a drug addict. She doesn't care about us. She um, if she did, she would be here. If she did, she wouldn't be drinking. You know. Um, but in reality, you know, if it wasn't me that had my thumb pushed down on her and and um, making her feel belittled, making her feel you know alone, making her feel you know worthless. Um, maybe she wouldn't have picked up a bottle. Maybe she wouldn't have did, you know, got high with this or got high with that. And um, what I'm in process of doing now is making amends with my children for the um, the ugly portrait that I portrayed and painted of their mother. Um, what I'm in process of, of attempting to do is make um, making amends with my wife for turning our children against her, for manipulating them into believing that she is this god-awful person uh, and that I'm the better parent. Um, and it, it's it's not an easy task. No, I uh, imagine I've, it's I've not. I've done more than swallow my pride on this topic and... It's one of the hardest things I've ever been able to do in my life. It's to make amends to the one that I've hurt the most and the one that I've, you know, pushed away so far as to where today we haven't heard from, me and my children haven't heard from my wife and their mother in over a week, and we're trying to reach out to her and, you know, and ask her to come home, and we asked her to leave because she was drinking, and... That's yeah, not fun right now. Are you then still with your wife? 
we are legally married. Um, she went through treatment um, several months ago to come back into our home to be a part of our lives. And that was, that's another you know way I was abusive towards her. I was, you know, put it in her mind that she had to earn her way back into our home. When it should have been the other way around. It should have been me that had to do everything to prove to her that I'm not abusive no more, that I'm not manipulating her no more, that... <sighs> um, mm. So, yeah, she's, uh... She started drinking, started using again, and asked her to leave a month ago, and she was staying in contact with us up until a week ago. And she kept asking to come home, and we were like, you need to sober up, and... I'm sorry. Is there a sense on your part that you're doing your work, but she's not doing hers? Big part of it, and that was the the um, misunderstanding that I led myself to believe as to where <clears throat> I'm doing all the effort here, and I'm not getting anything in return, but I gave my wife herself uh, maybe a false false sense of hope you know um, maybe to the point to where she didn't think that she could rely on me anymore because I did so much of pushing her away when she was drunk or, or getting high instead of trying to understand that she's just in pain that she's trying to cope with everything that she, you know she's just not out there just, just getting high just getting drunk that she feels alone, that she feels lost, that she doesn't think she can turn to me and our children because I've turned them against them, against her, you know? And, you know, now that that was our topic last week in, in our class, and ever since me and Scott and the group talked about it, I, that's, all I've been able, that's all I've been able to think about, is how do I make amends to my wife and my children, and how to Ask my wife to come home. More from our guests about the Domestic Abuse Intervention Project in Minnesota when we continue on Peace Talks Radio right after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Check out all our episodes online dating back to 2002 at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with Carol Boss, and today we're looking at a domestic abuse intervention project in Minnesota. It's getting some attention as it explores deeply the lived experience of both offenders and victims of domestic violence 
through extensive interviews and facilitated forums. The interviews have led to action plans in communities involving multiple agencies, including law enforcement, to try to protect victims and reform offenders. We've been hearing from one offender, Robert King, who's been participating in this domestic abuse intervention project in Duluth, Minnesota, on and off since 2009. Also, Melissa Skaya, who's executive director of Advocates for Family Peace in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, and Scott Miller, who's system coordinator for the Domestic Abuse Intervention Project in Duluth. They've all been talking with our Carol Boss, and here's more now. Point out the difference between the focus of this program and that of others which work with abusers. One of the differences is is what Melissa was referring to in that we don't impose um, our notions on the men. So we're not trying to teach them our notions of respect. We're trying to understand theirs, share ours, and see where it is they want to go. And and there's a there's a deep belief that the, the program has that the liberation from this violence is in them. It's our work to help them see their possibilities. Um, like there were, you know, last the last class last week, the men said that um, this is a violent world. And if you and one of the guys actually said, you know, I use violence for peace. I, I use violence to keep the peace. And, and there's, I mean, really there was no, they couldn't imagine nonviolence. And as we began to ask them questions about the caring things that they do do in their lives and say, you know, that sounds like nonviolence to me, right? I mean, if you can't see it, if you can't identify something, it's really hard to build on it. And so um, over the course of time, over the course of 27 of these classes, um, the men really develop a different understanding of themselves as men and the possibilities there are to live nonviolently with their children and, and the woman that they, they care about. Sounds like they get a whole new understanding of what peace really is. Oh, yeah. I mean, interestingly, and this, comes, this has come up a number of times over the years, icons of peace like Martin Luther King or, or Gandhi will come up and the men will say, but they lost. That's one of the guys last week said. I mean, they, they're dead. They ended up dead for, and so how, tell me how it is that they, you know, because their definition of it was um, uh, if, you, if you don't use violence against somebody else, if you don't overpower them, then you will pay the price, and the price is death. And really talking about, well, was that their goal, to live forever? You know, I mean, what, were, what, was, what was the most important thing for them, as, as, and in this particular case, men? What was the most important thing for them to accomplish? What were they trying to do, achieve? And, and really see that there's a, there's a different, there's a selflessness that comes from them that, that challenges this notion that, that violence deserves a violent response, that there's another way to go about this. And so again, we're opening up the, the idea of possibility to these men that, that they, they have a hard time wrapping their heads around. Part of our work um, in terms of building off of what Duluth was doing is we wanted to look at men who batter as fathers in particular and addressing fatherhood with them. And so one of the experiences that women 
um, came to tell us, and one woman in particular was talking about a time where she was sitting at the coffee table or the, the small dining room table with her son doing math homework. And her partner, uh, the father of, of her son, who was about 10 years old, they're doing math. He comes in and kind of abruptly says to the son, say the son's name is Johnny, Johnny, what are you doing with your mother? And he said, well, mom's helping me with math homework. And so the dad then picked up the math book and he hit the mom off the side of the head with it. Her head hit the kitchen table and her head popped up because he hit the back of her head so hard with that math book. And the woman said, the first sight I saw was my son's face. She said, and my son lost respect for me in that moment because when after um, the father, her husband had done that, he said, your mother can't even balance the checking book, the checkbook. Don't do math homework with your mother. She's stupid. And that's the level of what we're talking about in terms of battering. And so when we look at safety, we're looking at it in this broader way of how is it that men who batter, imp- their violence impacts the children directly, but also literally puts a wedge between the relationship of of women and, and their children, mothers and their children. And so when we think about what is our work in terms of safety, that's the level of what we're looking at. Because that's the level of what the violence and the battering is doing in terms of destroying relationships. And there's very much of an intent to create this wedge in between mothers and their children. What are the signs of an abusive relationship? A few key things someone who's being abused should recognize. What When we talk with battered women, when we think about our own life stories, um, part of what we begin to realize is that it becomes a slow sort of takeover of what we think, what we say, what we want. And so part of it is to begin to see how much of what I want What I have to say becomes important or relevant or how much of what I say or think it's taken down or dismissed in terms of the relationship. Um, You know, a way to sort of think about it is that, you know, a lot of people kind of ask this question, why doesn't she just leave? And part of it is because if men who batter, let's say in the first three dates, if they started calling us names, using physical violence, you know, uh, you, you, trying to, you know, force sex on us, it would be quite easy to leave, right, in the first three days. We're not emotionally attached. We don't have children. Our money isn't attached. We don't have a legal bond such as marriage. And so it really is an intentional sort of way to, to, to lure us in and take over our lives. I actually asked that question in men's group one uh, one time. Well, I've done it a few times actually, but because um, it really it really opens up an, a fascinating kind of reality about how they go about um, getting her. So you know the question is: so how how did you you know how did how would you describe meeting your partner and being in a relationship? Well, I, I saw her. Um, at a at a gathering at a park, and she was funny, and she was laughing, and she was, you know, I just thought, you know, she's attractive. I want to be with her. And so, what'd you do? Well, I went over, I talked to her, and I said, "Well, how did you talk to her?" You know, well, what do you mean? Like, well, did you listen? Did you do things she wanted to do? Did you 
find what she had to say, you know, funny or interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, so why, so now, because I know that you've, you know, as men, you've talked about what, how you do this now in your relationships with her. Why did you do it that way then and not that way now? And he says, well, that's really when you're trying to get her. And so we'll talk about getting her. Like, what does that mean? And he says, well, you, 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 you want her to be with you, okay? So you kind of listen to her and you do what she wants and um, you don't mind her friends and you go out where the places that she wants to go out until you know you got her. I said, well, how do you know when you have her? One guy said, um, when she moves in with me out into the country, you know, and there's one car. Okay. Another guy said, when she's pregnant. Another guy said, when, when uh, our wedding night is the first time I beat her, you know. And so they, had, they all had this notion about when she's mine. And then I said, so then how, why does the behavior change once you know she's yours and you've got her? Why the behavior change? Because now she's going to know who I really am. None of this other crap about having to listen to her and do the kind of things she wants and put up with her stupid friends. Now she's with me and she's mine. And now she's going to learn how I, I am. Right? So there's this whole idea, you know, it really be, it became apparent that what these men were talking about was, was really a task. It wasn't about that kind of courtship that we would normally think of. It's like a task. I need to get her. This is how I'm going to do it. And once I have her and she's mine and she's locked into me in, in the ways that Melissa talked about, then, um, then she's going to know who I really am and she's going to have to live with it. And then often what will happen is women will say, but I know he can be different because he was different in the beginning. And part of our work as advocates is to say, but is that who he really was or is this who he really is now? Because oftentimes we'll find that women, sort of our socialization, you know, the romanticizing of the world and and relationship gets us attached to who he was in the beginning. And we have our task as advocates is to pose, but is that who he really was or is this who he really is? Well, what the women say is, what happened to the man I met? I mean, that's their reality. And so they're, they're doing backflips trying to get, get you know, because he's telling her all the, if you would just, if you would just, if you would just, you know. And so they're doing these backflips in the relationship trying to do everything they can to get it back to the way it was. Part of the fascinating, you know, stuff we learn in this, doing this work is that these men can be nice in relationship. It's what she fell in love with. So it's not like they're without the ability or without the skill, right? It's really about what I believe about women and what a man gets to do in relationship with a woman. And so once I know I have you, now I'm going to do, I'm going to be who I really am, which is what I believe. Scott, the men are, are telling you the two sides of it. Do they get how chilling it sounds? I think that if there's anything that the men in group struggle with fully appreciating, it's how dehumanizing and the impact of that, uh, what that is on the women. I don't, I think they really struggle with emotionally connecting to how bad it is and has been for her. If we're thinking about an upstream 
perspective, is this program uncovering any revelations about the sources of battery behavior? Anything new that maybe wasn't much of a factor 20 years ago or so? Here's the thing to take it way beyond 20 years ago. <laughs> um, one of the things that Ellen Pence always said, uh, who wrote our original curriculum, was that when a man slaps a woman with the intent to get her to comply, we can't look at that slap in isolation, that there's a whole lineage of in- men's entitlement over women that's historical, that that slap is an historical action. Um, just like an act of racism, it's historical. It's not isolated between this individual and that individual. So in other words, when we're working with men in group, we not only talk about what they're doing, but we talk about what society validates for them in regards to treating women as objects. They have to see the link. Otherwise, they can't critically be aware of all the messages that we men get in, in, our, in our communities. They have to see it, and, and we have to see it in order to be effective in this work. It's also connected to a community aspect of where they live. When we asked men who batter, for example, when you got arrested, who was the first person you talked to? And tell us what they said about your arrest. So we have 16 men in our men's nonviolence class. 15 of the men said something to the effect of, you know, that judge screwed you over. I would have hit her harder. You had a woman cop. You live in Minnesota. It's a woman's state. There was one guy in the group out of 16 who said, I talked to my mother. My mother said, I'm very disappointed in you. We don't support violence towards women in our family. I still love you. And don't ask me to stop talking to her because I'm not going to blame her for what you've done. And so 15 of the 16 men lived in a community that supported their violence and didn't and weren't taking account for it, weren't giving them messages that you can't do this in our community and we won't accept it. So the broader community continues in large scales to still, still support men's violence towards women. Again, a bit more of Carol Boss's conversation with Robert King, whose history of battering women landed him in the Domestic Abuse Intervention Project in 2009. When we talked with him in late 2013, he had told us that he was still hoping that his wife, who was herself struggling with alcoholism and drug addiction and hadn't been in touch with the family for some time, would come back to what he felt was a now more supportive home environment and a reformed husband. You're talking right now about um, your wife, and it's a, it's a difficult situation, and there's a lot of sad feelings. Yeah. So if we just put that aside um, for a moment... If you look at where you were in life a few years ago and the relationship you were in with your wife and where you are right now in terms of the relationship with your children and um, the relationship you have been trying to um, grow with your, with your wife, do you feel how far you have come, the steps, the major steps that you have taken? I think it, it's been groundbreaking enough. It's like putting the first man on the moon. That's how I look at it. It's like monumental for me to to, to change the way that I have, because the only path that I was heading down was just a continuous destructive road. And um, I'm thankful that things happened the way they did, and I'm you know very thankful that I got involved in DAIP. I'm very thankful for Carlton Colony for actually pressing charges on me and making me face the music. Um, it's 
No, I, I wouldn't say 100% mission accomplished, but I've I've been able to, to live with myself. I've been able to look at myself in the mirror. I've been able to hold my head high, you know, and I've been able to, you know, reflect a lot of my life and live my life through my children. What motivates you to be public about your process? You know, just talking to us, make making yourself available to the media seems like a big step. I, I think it's important that people hear people's real stories, not, it's not some sugar-coated bullshit where um, people aren't going to believe it, it's real. You know, I, I have nothing to hide. You know, I, 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 if somebody can get something out of hearing someone who was truly abusive and, and owns it and can acknowledge it and talk about it, and if they get something out of listening to what I'm saying, the mission accomplished. You know, I don't look at nothing in return. I don't, you know, expect nothing to come back out of this. I just want to try and educate some people into to realizing, you know, I mean, especially across Indian country. You know, I mean, we we lead the we lead the the you know, we're in first place as far as domestic abuse. And there needs to be more awareness. There needs to be more advocates on reservations. You know, so there's not so much abuse going unreported or or, or women having to turn their cheeks and, and, you know, just brush it off like it's everyday life because it's not everyday life. No one, you know, um, deserves to be put in a corner or, or, you know, held down to the point to where they fear for their life or pee their pants because they're scared of you or, you know, don't want to say nothing to you because how you might react. You know, no woman should have to be put in that situation. You can hear our complete interviews with Robert King there and Melissa Skaya, Executive Director of the Advocates for Family Peace in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, and also Scott Miller, System Coordinator for the Domestic Abuse Intervention Project in Duluth, Minnesota, all at our website, peacetalksradio.com. There are other useful links on the topic of domestic violence there, and a link to another program in our series, and more. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you'll also find links to all the programs in our series going back to 2002. There you can also hear the program streaming, download some episodes, order CDs of many of them, sign up for a monthly newsletter or a free podcast. And it's where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to the nonprofit media organization that produces this program, separate and apart from your local public radio station. All at peacetalksradio.com. In addition to support from listeners like you, we also receive support from the Eric Oppenheimer Family Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, the Paul Ray Peace Prize, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Support for good radio shows also comes from Embassy Suites Albuquerque Hotel and Spa, a centrally located downtown Albuquerque all-suites hotel near the University of New Mexico and the Albuquerque Convention Center. Information at embassysuites.hilton.com. Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Carol Boss, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thank you for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. (music) 